We finished explaining, are we recording yet? We finished explaining why Chachma would motivate Mesiris Nefesh. Right? Because Chachma is the part where the godly soul is capable of identifying so strongly with Hashem that it seeks, it desires nothing else other than to become completely subsumed within Hashem, losing its, its existence as an entity in, entirely. And the analogy for that was the flame, right? And that is such a, 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 a constant feature of its being that right, it's never at rest when it's outside of Hashem, when it, when, it, when, it, when it has some sort of entity, being an entity of itself, like the flame is always flickering. Um, I was, as I do, preparing the class, and um, I noticed something, that the Rebbe makes a comment that in discussing the um, the analogy of the fire, I thought this was just a nice little thing to add. Um, it, the Hebrew it says that the fi- the fire seeks to ascend upwards to its source, even though it'll be completely nullified. Chafetz betivay. This is what it seeks in accordance with its nature. But with the soul, the altar adds. Um, in the, in the same idea, the altar but adds the word. One second, where is it? It's its desire. So when talking about the soul, the word desire is added. And there points out because this is an expression of the soul's choice and volition. Right? It's not a built-in characteristic like by the fire. So um, just, even in the wording, the altar but made sure to emphasize the word of will in referring to the soul, that the soul chooses this desire rather than it's just being imposed on it. Okay, um, so we're now moving on to, um, so we have one question left unanswered about the, 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 the natural, uh, about, uh, about this love, um, Right, so we we had four questions at the beginning, which is how is it an inheritance? What is its source? What is its goal? And how does it contain fear? And so the how it's an inheritance is because every Jew inherits a godly soul, which has an aspect of chachma, which contains the ultimate chachma, and which tells us also the source of this love is chachma, and its goal, its objective is complete unification with God to the point of dissolving any sense of personal identity within God, right? Which is not a normal kind of a love. Okay. We still have to get back to the idea, the last one, which is fear. Um, but before we do that, okay, um, when the altar introduced this love, he called this love um, a hidden love. Um, and so we're now going to start talking about chachma and holiness and klipa and death and all this. And this is going to help us both, not also, it's going to help us understand in what sense this love is a hidden love, and then that will help us understand in what sense, help us understand the fear in this, that's included in this type of love. Okay, now yesterday we started the idea that the general principle in the realm of holiness is only which things derive from Chachma, okay? So Chachma, therefore, and I said, so you have to think of like holiness being like, anything which is holy is like it's, Chachma is like oil, it's suffused with oil. The more oil, the holier it is. Something which is fat-free would be, in the analogy, the corresponding thing would be klipa, right? Things which are unholy. Now, 
What I want to do is I want to explain this idea of Chachmah um, being the key ingredient to the side of holiness. I want to flush that out a bit. Good? Okay. So I'm going to make the following argument, okay? And I want you to think about it. Don't dismiss it because it's, 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 it sounds silly. First thing I'm going to tell you what I'm going to try and argue for. I want to argue that a rock is more intelligent than your average high school student. Do you think that's, that sounds odd, right? Okay. Now you ready for my, uh, my argument? Okay. What is your average high school student's grade uh, in physics? They take their physics class. What is their average grade? C. C, probably. I mean, C should be the average grade, right? Okay. What does a C mean? Well, I think in usual most grading systems, that would mean of the questions that are asked, they're getting the right answer. Um, how many, what percentage of the time? 70. 70-ish percent, right? Okay. Right? Keep that in mind when you consult a doctor. <laughs> right? That means, by the way, 20 to 30% of the time, they're getting the answer wrong, right? When something happens to a rock, such as it's thrown or dropped or hit, or whatever the case might be, what percentage of the time does the rock get the answer right in terms of doing what the laws of physics say to do? 100%. So the rock is always able, right? So if you throw the rock in the air, right? The rock perfectly calculates exactly what the trajectory of the rock should be given mass, initial, moment, initial momentum, gravity, right? Perfectly. So it's much better at solving physics problems than your average high school student, right? And I think if I had asked you before starting this thing, the ability to solve physics problems would is an indicator of intelligence, right? So is that a somewhat plausible argument that the rock is more intelligent than the average high school student? It solves physics problems perfectly 100% of the time and the average high school student doesn't. It behaves in a way that's consistent with the correct answer. But does it have any agency to not do the right? I didn't ask about agency. But are you intelligent if you can't make the wrong choice? So, can I... Can I say what's underlying what you're saying rather than what you're actually saying? You're, you are objecting to my use of the word intelligence in describing the rock, right? Right? There, you think that there's something different about what The Rock is doing and what the high school student does. It's that the, what The Rock is doing shouldn't be called intelligence, right? And you're trying to figure out what it is and you're latching on to maybe the idea of choice and agency and... and but like, that's not the core of what you're trying to get at. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that, but yes. Right. I'm glad I can go deep into your mind. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I don't want to go that deep into your mind. Everybody's mind, if you go too far deep, you need to be very, very... Um, Charitable. That's why people who aren't charitable shouldn't go too deep into their own minds. Okay. The... So let's think about this, yeah? There are certain things which are um, correct. If... And so like, for instance, let's say 
that um, two plus two is four, right? That, that idea is correct. It's a correct idea. There's certain ideas that are incorrect, right? Two plus two is 16. That's incorrect. Then there's the, the physical world in which we live, right? Okay. The physical world somehow always seems to, you know, with regard to certain things, do the right thing. So the rock is always going to act properly according to the, you know, the, the, the rules of the physics. In fact, we do the reverse. We say, we are so convinced that the rock always gets it right that if it turns out that the, what the rock does and what makes sense to you don't agree, what do we conclude? Who's right and who's wrong? It's what's called an experiment, right? If you were, for instance, it makes sense to you that heavier things would fall faster. But it turns out that the heavier rocks don't fall faster, then what do we conclude? The rock is wrong, rock doesn't know how to do physics, or you're wrong, your idea is wrong. Right? That's what we conclude, right? Okay. So we have this idea that there's somehow the, the idea being correct, right? And that's the way the world actually works. Now, here's the thing. Um, I want, there is a worldview called materialism. Have you heard of materialism? Materialism is basically the idea that the only thing that really exists is the material world. Okay. And so there's no such thing as an idea. Ideas are just ways of describing the physical world, right? So if you describe something differently the way it is, then you're obviously wrong, right? So in this way of thinking, like, well, I mean, obviously if the way, if, obviously, the, there is no idea of, the, of how a rock should fall. There's just the way the rock falls. And if you come up with a way of describing it that's accurate, good for you. And if you fail, you fail, right? But there's another way of thinking about it, which is not materialism, which is saying that there's a level of reality which is not the physical world. Okay, so think about this very simply. Is a person just a lump of flesh? Or is there a soul in addition to the lump of flesh, right? So a materialist would say that there's just a lump of flesh. And a non-materialist would say, well, in addition to the lump of flesh, there's something else. We'll call that other thing a soul. Make sense of the difference here, right? Okay. So if you were to ask a lot of scientists, a lot of scientists are materialists. What does that mean? They think that the only thing that's really real is the physical world. And be, what is it therefore, and this is very important, this is, this will all come back to the Tanya. Therefore, what does it mean to be correct? It means your ideas are correct if they, if they describe the physical world. If they don't accurately describe the physical world, then they're wrong. That's how materialist thinks of things being correct versus incorrect, okay? What if you're not a materialist? So let's just use the body and soul for a second, okay? Um, let's say your soul um, seeks to do something, right? I don't know. Your soul um, seeks to be a good person. But there's something in your body that doesn't let you. So we would say that your, your, your body is doing something wrong. The material world is doing something wrong, right? Because it should be in accordance with the soul, right? Make sense? So what we're saying is that the non-material, the spiritual, whatever it is, it has, it, it, it can be correct in and of itself, and then we can actually reverse. We can judge the material world. Is the material world correct? Does it conform to the spiritual? These are two very different ways of thinking, right? Okay, so now, if I were to believe that there is a spiritual reality to things, right? And part of that spiritual reality are the rules of physics, then that means the rules of physics are the correct rules for the world to follow, not because the world happens to work that way, but because 
those are the rules that make sense. Those are the rules that God decide, whatever the case might be, right? And now I'd have an interesting question. That's very nice, but how does the rock know that those are the rules it's supposed to follow? You see what I'm saying? Like the minute I start to think of the ideas as having a kind of existence independent of just describing the physical world, then I have an interesting question. How does the rock know that it's supposed to follow those rules and not other rules? Okay. I'm going to say everything I said again from the beginning. If you're a materialist, then you just think that what does it mean an idea is correct? That it accurately describes the physical world. But if you're not a materialist, you think some things are correct and true in and of themselves, right? And you even have the question of, well, are, is our conduct in the physical world proper? Does it conform with those rules and ideas? Obviously, religion is not materialistic, right? Makes sense, right? Um, and by the way, this is, this is all sorts of interesting things. I'll, I'll, I'll give like a social commentary in a moment. Um, is it possible to judge things like being a mother, being a wife, being a father, being a husband, and say this person is a good husband, this person is a bad husband, this person is a good wife, this person is a bad wife? Well, if you have a notion of husband, father, wife, mother as an, ent- as an I- idea in and of itself, and that is proper and correct, then you can look at actual physical people and say, how well do you measure up to that? And if you measure up to that pretty well, you're a good one. And if you don't measure up so well, then you are a bad one. But if you just think the concept of wife, father, mother, um, et cetera, are just describing the way the physical world is, well, then you can't say someone is a good or a bad version of it. It's just, you know, it's all very descriptive. And you can see how this is going to change how we think of ourselves and we look at the world, right? Okay. So getting back to this, so then if the rules that the rock is supposed to follow have been, those are the right rules because they make sense or God says or whatever this case might be, then you have a question, how does the rock know to follow the rules? So now I'm going to ask a different question. You have children. And there are rules that children should follow. What are some rules that children should follow? Let's, let's, just start, let's talk about like kindergarten, first grade. What are some rules children should follow? Don't run with scissors. Don't run with scissors. It is bad to run with scissors. Now, that is not a description of the children. That is, that I, that is correct and proper in and of itself. And I see that some children run with scissors and some children don't run with scissors, right? And I ask myself why. One of the reasons could be is that some children lack knowledge of the rule. They don't know that it is wrong to run with scissors. And that's why they run with scissors. But some children, you stop and you ask them and you say, do you know that it's wrong to run with scissors? And they say, yes, I know that it's wrong to run with scissors. (laughs) Then why are you running with scissors? They look at you like, uh... Uh, I don't know. So then, one way of understanding this is that they don't really know that it's wrong to run with scissors. In other words, the wrongness of running with scissors has not fully penetrated them. Make sense? Like, for instance, you have oil, and you have food, and how much has the oil seeped into the food? Okay. So, if we say that certain things are good, proper, and true... There's a question, how, do, how, do you, how, do, how does the good, the proper, and true come into you and influence you? So now going back to what I said originally, right? If it is good, proper, and true, whatever the case might be, whatever you want to use, that rocks should follow the rules of physics, whatever those rules might be. How does the inanimate rock know what the rules are? Well, we have a name for the characteristic that allows you to be aware of these kind of transcendent things, right? 
in such a way that they really impact you. And we call them being smart or wise or intelligent or something like that, right? So in this way of thinking, I would have to say there is some thing that functions like intelligence in the rock, right? That lets it know in some kind of sense which rules it should follow. And it knows those rules so well that what? It cannot help but act otherwise. Does that make sense? Now, here's the thing. Your average high school student, when he wants to or she wants to know those rules, they have a hard time getting knowing the... You know, but now here's the thing. They're, the physical body knows those rules, right? If they, if they jump out of, a, 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 out of an airplane, right? The, the body's gonna follow the rules of physics. But the question is, is their consciousness know those rules? And that is more interesting, right? right? So what I want you to think of now is that what we think of as intelligence or intellect or wisdom, and I don't wanna get hung up on the, the details, is really you have one thing which was kind of proper, good, or true, and you have something else. And the question is, how much is that something else really being really aware of the good or true and being governed by that? And that ability to let the lower thing being governed by the higher good or truer thing, that's basically the function of intelligence, wisdom, intellect. And in that functional way of thinking about it, everything in the world has some degree of intelligence to it. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a different way of thinking, okay? Um, and by the way, once you start moving out of the rock, you see that we actually do think this way. So I'll ask you a question. Does a spider know how to spin a web? Yeah. Do you think if you could communicate with the spider, the spider could articulate how a web is spun? No. But you still are willing to think of it having some kind of a knowing, right? Some kind of a, right? So. If I then just extend that even further, the rock has some kind of knowing of what rules it should follow, right? Now, I don't know what it's like qualitatively for the rock to know things. I would, pretty confident, it's not like, like the, the knowing of human consciousness, right? It may, not even have a, it may not even have any quality of experience to it at all, but that's beside the point. There's a kind of a function here. Okay? So what I want you to think is that wisdom, knowledge, intelligence, that capacity serves as a bridge to take something that is higher, good, true, ideal, proper, whatever kind of that genre of things, and allow it to reside, govern, and influence something which is more tangible and concrete. So the Rambam says in the laws of Torah study, he says, how do you know if someone is a chacham, is a wise person? Anyone know? No, that might be a learning from every person might be it might be something that goes together with wisdom might be an example of wisdom, but that's not how you know that they're a wise person. But I'm looking, I'm seeing there's all these people. How can I tell who's wise? And let's drop fakers because I mean, there's always a question of faking things. But like, what are the symptoms? What are the characteristics of a wise person? They never stop learning. He says the way they dress, the way they walk, and the way they eat. That is a very good question. <laughs> anyone who dress well can eat well. Well, let's think about this for a second, okay? What is the proper 
way to eat. No. Forks are only a few hundred years old. So. No. Well, the proper way to do something is in, should, has to be understood in light of what it, purpose it serves, what its end goal is, right? If I ask you what is the proper way to um, wash dishes, you need to know what the goal of washing dishes is. The dishes should be clean enough to eat from, right? And I said to eat from for a reason because, right, they're not like sterile, like enough to do surgery with, right? We don't need that clean. Okay, fine. And then you could like, but what, so what is, so you need to know the goal before you know what is the proper way to go about it, right? So what is the goal of eating? What is the purpose of eating? To function. To provide nutrition so that we can function. Okay, what is the purpose of functioning? What's the purpose of living? What? Okay, let's say to learn more Torah. I, I'll say just, just I'll, um, learn more Torah is fine. Okay, learn more Torah, serve God. We go like, okay, so it's like this. The purpose of living is to learn more Torah or to, to serve God or something in that, right? And that means that decrees the way we should live, which now I need the ability to function that way. And part of that is providing me with nutrition, right? Now, let's think about this. If you, the amount of time you spend eating or the amount of, or the, or the amount of right, compromises living a life that's focused on the study of Torah and service of God. Is that the proper way to eat? Eating food which is pleasurable but actually makes you less functional. Is that the proper way to eat? Right. So there are lots of in, uh, improper ways to eat, right? Eating food in such a way that makes you oblivious to what your purpose of life is. Right, so being too mentally engaged with the food, regardless of how much you're eating it, right? There's a lot of ways of eating incorrectly, right? So now, what would you call a person who the correct way to, the proper way to eat is something that they have, they know the same way a rock knows the laws of physics, right? A rock knows the laws of physics so well that what? It can't help but follow the laws of physics. What about a person who knows the purpose and therefore the proper way of eating so deeply, so profoundly, they cannot help but eat that way? That person would be a, what kind of person? What do you call a person who has imbibed the truth very, very deeply? Very wise, intelligent person, knowledgeable person. And can we do the same thing with dress? With the way a person walks? And the Ram's point is, the fact that a person has some sort of conscious awareness of ideas doesn't mean it has penetrated them that fully and that deeply. Right? It's actually in the incidental things that they're not even necessarily consciously paying attention to that you see that their life is, embodies higher truths, that that's where you see they really are a wise person, that wisdom has really penetrated the whole fiber of their being. Most people, they're just, you know, they might have some sort of conscious awareness of it, they can even explain it, but it often ends there. And they struggle to actually make it go down a step further. Okay? So what I want you to think of now is we have really three levels. Okay? I'm going to label them. Okay? Um, one level is going to be called the truth or the good or the proper. And the, another level, that's, going to be, that's the higher level. The lowest level is going to be the physical or the real or the actual. 
And what's the middle level? The thing that gives the thing that's the physical, the real, or the actual a sense of the good, the proper, and the true. And so much so it actually that the good and proper and true actually govern it. What's that middle level that bridges the gap between them? That's chachma, that's wisdom, that's intelligence, that's knowledge. Again, within that, that's what that's for. Okay. This is the way of thinking that the Tanya, and, and this is not like unique to Tanya, but this is a way of thinking about the kind of the role that knowledge, wisdom, intelligence play in a person's life, and then extrapolating that as to a kind of function that really everything would need if it's meant to follow certain truths, certain norms, certain ideals. Again, if you're a materialist, you don't think like this. So you have to be careful how you think about things. Now this, by the way, is all an analogy. Okay, So... What if I replace, though, the idea of the good, the true, the proper with something else? What if I replace it with the infinite being of God, right? And I replace the material, the actual, the physical, right, the real with created reality, then I would have a thing. What serves that kind of same function that, 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 that senses and infuses into created reality? the infinite holiness of God. What would that be? That would function in a similar way and that's what we mean in Hasidus and Kabbalah as Chochmah. Okay, so there's an analogy and the parallel, okay? In the analogy, we're saying that there is a kind of higher non-material plane of good, true, proper, right? The realm of ideas, of morals, of ethics, of purpose, right? And there's this lower realm, the realm of the concrete, physical, material world, right? And what is it that allows the concrete physical world to be aware of that higher plane and to be influenced by that plane and governed by that plane? We call that intelligence or wisdom, right? In an analogous manner, there's created reality itself and then there's the infinite being of God. What is it that allows created reality to sense the infinite being of God and be permeated with that sense and influenced by that sense and governed by that sense? That quality is called Chachmah. Which means the more, now let's think, go back to your high school students, right? The more intelligent the high school student, the better they'll do on their physics test, right? The, the, the more a person has wisdom, right? It, the more it will, it will govern even the small little parts of life, like eating, walking, clothing, etc., right? So the degree of chachma and how, and how much that chachma has saturated the thing will determine the degree of that created being's holiness. And something which lacks Chachmah will be unaware and function completely outside of the realm of God's infinite holiness. Okay? Like there's some people who are just totally lacking in intelligence. And so like when you give them a physics test, it's not that they get some answers wrong. They're just completely unaware of what they're even supposed to be doing with the test, right? Make sense? So I want you to think of Chachmah as serving this role of bringing the higher thing into the lower thing, making the lower thing deeply aware of and influenced by the higher thing. That's what we think when we think of a person as having wisdom and intelligence. That's why um, thinkers in this stream of thought think of everything having some kind of intelligence-like quality. And again, in that sense, or at least when it comes to the laws of physics, you know, the rock is better at it than your consciousness is. <laughs> um, 
But then that's only an analogy. The analog, the thing that we're really interested in is how the Ein Sof, the infinite being of Hashem, can be made, can be present in and in the created reality, the created reality can be aware of it to the point that the created reality is actually being transformed and governed by that. And the quality that allows for that to take place is called Chachma. Okay? And so, everything that has even a drop of Chachma will get goes in one camp, Sitra de Kedusha side of holiness, everything that is devoid of Chachma, regardless of how, any other characteristic it has, will be called Sitra Achra, the other side, and that's what Klipa is. How do you spell that? In Hebrew? Yeah. Um, it's actually, Sitra Achra is Aramaic. Samech Tes Resh Aleph. New word, Aleph Ches Resh Aleph. In Hebrew, Bitzad Acher. Other side. Okay. Questions on that idea? Okay. So now we're going to continue. Actually, we'll just start from the beginning of the, of the paragraph and read from there. Now, this is a general principle in the whole realm of holiness. That holiness is only that which is derived from Chachma, which is called Kedesh Elyon, the Supreme Holiness, whose existence is nullified in the light of the Ains of Blessed is He which is clothed in it, so that it is not a thing apart, as explained above. In other words, what does Chachma have as a quality? Chachma has the quality that even though it is not the infinite of God, it so heavily identifies with the infinite, it cannot see itself ever really as something apart. Okay, does that make sense? So that explains the aspect of kind of the Chachma's relationship to what's above it. Okay. Therefore, it is called Kayachma. Okay. Um, the, the translator did something with there, but I'm going to. Kayach means the power, and Ma means what? what? Okay. In context, what this means is the power not to be anything. In other words, Chachma has to be capable of letting go of itself completely if it's going to so heavily identify with the infinite, right? Okay. So that's the unique, the, the, what, what so what we're saying is that the Chachma in any created entity is what makes it holy. And what is it about Chachma that makes things holy is that Chachma has this ability, has this ability to identify with Hashem. So absolutely, because it's willing to let go of itself completely, to not, have, to not be a defined entity, that there's nothing concrete you can say about it. Okay. This stands in direct contrast to the so-called Klipa and Sitra Achra, so now there's another set of created beings who are called klipa. Klipa means a shell, sitrach means the other side. Wherefrom are derived the souls of Gentiles who work for themselves alone, demanding give, give, and feed me in order to become independent beings and entities as mentioned above in direct contrast to the category of chachma. Okay. We're going to, for right now, ignore the issue of the souls of Gentiles. Not that we're going to ignore that forever. We can obviously talk about it, but I want to just focus on the idea. What is the defining characteristic of the klipa? The defining characteristic of the klipa is if Chachma is 100% willing to not be an entity, klipa is what? What is klipa? Desires to be its own entity. Desires to be its own entity. Okay. So why does klipa have any, why does klipa ever value anything else? Ever? 
It affirms itself. It affirms itself. It enhances itself, right? Everything else in the realm of Klippa gains value because it helps it be or maintain or become a better entity, right? Chachma is the quality that it sees no value in being its own entity at all and therefore allows the Chachma to identify absolutely with Hashem. Let's use the example back to it where we remember we used intelligence as the example for Chachma. Remember, Chachma here is a spiritual thing. It's not like human intelligence. But let's use, let's, let's talk about intelligence for a moment, okay? I teach um, many, many classes. I'm going to focus on Gemara class right now for two reasons. One, I don't teach you Gemara, so it won't be less triggering. Um, and two, it happens more frequently in Gemara classes. Um, in Gemara class, so Gemara is, 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 you need a little, quite a bit of intelligence to learn Gemara, setting aside language skills and all those types of things. Um, Gemara involves very complex reasoning. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example of Gemara reasoning. Are you ready? Okay. Since the text said this, we can then therefore infer that in something else, the rule would be different. This must mean that without that inference, we would have assumed the reverse, which therefore means that we could not use that as an assumption in interpreting this third text. Like it's that kind of level of reasoning. I, I, left, I, mean, I don't care about the, the specific. Just, like you really need to be paying attention. If you're like half dozing in and like, uh, getting it generally, it's not gonna work, right? Now, we all know that people like things to make sense, right? You familiar with this? This is what I call the desire to Google things. You discover you don't know something, something doesn't make sense, what do you do? You Google it and you read like a half a little blurb that shows up, or like now it doesn't feel like nonsensical or ignorant and so problem solved. It's not like you really understand it, right? So what happens if you're listening to something and you heard 20, 30, 40, 50% of the words? What does your mind try to do? Fill in the blanks. Fill in the blanks the way they'll make sense to you. And you're good, right? And now you have fulfilled your desire for things to make sense to yourself, right? And then what happens is you voice that because the teacher asks a question. And the teacher... And depending on the ability of the teacher to, you know, um, control their body language, looks at you like you just jumped out of left field. Like, where did that come from? That has no relevance, right? And she says, no, 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 that, that, like, that's not, like, we're, we're talking about this and the reasoning is that. And then the student gets into this whole conversation and trying to explain why, how what they think also makes sense. In fact, their point of view should also be taken into consideration. Do you think that goes very well? No. What is this student lacking? So I'm going to actually say they're not lacking humility. I'm going to say they're lacking intelligence. What do I mean? If you're an intelligent person, then you pay attention to things outside yourself and beyond yourself because where else are you going to get the knowledge, right? I don't want to even, I don't want to, it's the same thing as humility. It is, it is, it's kind of beside the, beside the point. Somebody who, and you can hear this by the way, sometimes people, their intelligence like kind of um, 
it, 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 what did I say? It plateaus. See, like, little kids often are more intelligent, relatively speaking, than adults. Why? Because little kids kind of walk around with a sense that, like, I need to learn stuff and I need to understand stuff, so I need to pay attention to stuff, right? Now, the problem is, like, they're dealing with the basics, right? So you can't overwhelm them. But then people start to plateau. Like once you have the sense like you have it all figured out and everything else, you're not really being intelligent because you're closed off to whatever other truths, you know, proper things that are out there that you don't know. Like you're not, and you said intelligence is what allows you to become aware of those things and, 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 and be influenced by those things. So you're not being intelligent. So a sign of an intelligent person is that they do a lot of listening. Does that make sense? Okay. Which means you actually have two things that are very, very opposite. There's the desire to not be confused and there's the desire to know the truth and they're not the same thing. And in Gemara class, what I encounter and most Gemara teachers encounter this, and again, it's not unique to Gemara, but shows up in Gemara because of the level of reasoning involved, is that people's desire to not be confused is often in direct contradiction to the desire to really understand what's going on. Because to not be confused, if you kind of oversimplify it down to the level of what you're comfortable with, then you're not confused anymore, right? But you still don't really know what's going on. Does this make sense? So, Klippa is a kind of an entity which would prefer what? It would prefer to be its own entity rather than be subsumed in the infinity of God, right? So it is the antithesis of Chachma. Okay? And this is what's very important to understand, is that it's not the simply that Klippa is lacking Chachma, right? There's no, there, it's, it's, not, it's not an absence of Chachma, it's actually... Opposite. Right, and the idea here is, is that there, everything is, there's an understanding in Chassidus, basically, that everything is kind of driven. Everything has a, I don't want to say life, because we're going to use the word life for, 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 for a different idea momentarily. Um, but everything has a certain energy to it. It's a certain drive. So you're never, so if you're, if you're driven by some chachma to some degree, then you're driven to be influenced by, to be governed by, and ultimately to identify and be subsumed with, within the infinity of God. And if you're not driven by chachma, then what are you driven by? You're driven by? The klipa. By, well, that klipa is the drive to be your own entity. And thus, not be subsumed within God, Right? There's nothing here everything just sitting around just being passive. Okay? This makes sense? Okay. So now, um, do human beings want to um, be their own entity? Yes or no? Would you, would you, yeah? Yes. Okay, yeah. In fact, we tend to think of a, a if, that's, if that drive is lacking, that's generally a sign of serious mental illness, right? So then what is, what is, what is the source of the life of human beings then? It is Chachma or Klippa. Klippa. Now with Jews, it becomes complicated. Jews have a godly soul, but that's basically what it's saying here. So you kind of make everything go say like this. At the core thing, is this being, thing being driven by an identification with the infinity of God 
that's motivating it to let go of itself, to become more subsumed within God as much as is possible. And then there's a question of how much is that drive present in that thing? A little bit, a lot, is the totality of its being like the godly soul itself? Or is it the opposite? This thing is being driven by an urge to be its own entity. Then that is the klipa. The klipa is a kind of... It's, 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 and, and everything that is doing anything is being driven, and is it being driven to be subsumed within God or being driven to be its own entity, perpetuate itself? And that's a trade-off. There's one or the other. You don't, you don't, you know, there's no middle ground there. But now let's think about this through, or think this through. If you're being driven to be your own entity, then you're the opposite of Chachmas. Chachmas is willing to not be, Chachmas is perfectly comfortable not being its own entity. But if you're driven to be your entity, then you're also completely blocked off from having any of Hashem's infinite presence within you, right? And if that's the case, then anything that's pursuing being its own entity is a place that's devoid of God's presence. Which is a very challenging thought, yes? So that's what he's saying. So let's, let's get into this. Chachma is this identification with Hashem that's so absolute to be completely subsumed within him. And that means Chachma has to be willing to not be anything. The power of Ma, power to not be anything. Klipa is the opposite. Klipa is the insistence to be something. And other things gain value by the fact that they fortify, sustain it, and build it up. But that means that the Klipa is completely unwilling to be receptive to God. So that which is pursuing itself is shutting out God. That which is trying to, that which identifies with God to the degree it is, is let, must be letting go of itself. Okay, now. Um, would you like the sanitized version or the correct version? Correct. The correct version? No one wants the sanitized version? No? Okay, good. Chachma is unhealthy. Okay? So I'm going to say a question. I'm going to say a question. Um, and then I'm going to, to ridicule the question, okay? Important part of religious life is to be properly devoted to God. Yes? And I think, you know, we're, we're people and we live our lives and we want to know, how do I, how do I, how am I, how can I be devoted to God in a healthy way? Right? That sounds like a good topic for a class, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a silly question. Because to be devoted to God is directly proportional to the willingness to not be your own entity. Which would mean, let's think about what we, how we brought up this whole Chachma thing to begin with. Chachma is the thing that motivates martyrdom. Remember martyrdom? Martyrdom is not healthy. <laughs> martyrdom results in? That's right. What, why, what is motivating the person to tack on that word healthy in front of words like tshuva or acceptance of the yoke of heaven or being religious or whatever it is, right? Why do they feel the need to add the word healthy? 
Okay, but then that just moves the question. Why are people going to listen if you add the word healthy? Because you're emphasizing that you still want to preserve yourself. That's right. You can have this without totally losing yourself. That makes it more appealing, right? Makes it more, I'm willing to listen. I don't, I don't have to totally lose myself. Yeah? But are we being 100% honest with what, the, with, what, with what holiness really is? Um, every morning, one of the things in our prayers is the Akedas Yitzchak, the, the binding of Isaac. Why is it in our morning prayers? That we remember that we should have absolute like, joy when serving Hashem in any circumstance, even when it's killing our child. Okay. So, that our willingness to serve Hashem, our devotion to Him, our identification, whatever word you want to put there, right? Should not be constrained by what is good for maintaining my, me and my life that I should wholeheartedly be devoted to him without any, but in a healthy manner. <laughs> to remind ourselves that that's really the truth of the matter. Is this comfortable? Do you know why it's not comfortable? Because we're not just the Chacham of the Godly soul. If we were, then <laughs> we'd be perfectly fine with this. But we're not just Chacham of the God. We have an animal soul, right? And the animal soul has a very strong interest in preserving ourselves in identity, right? Okay? But pretending that's not the case is not going to be helpful. Okay? Now, I do want to say something, and this is, this is where um, it gets a little bit more complicated. Does God desire um, pure chachma? Like, what does God desire pure chachma? Depends on. Well, generally, we think not, and the reason is because, like, why did He stick a soul in a body? (laughs) So it must be that God sees some value in chachma interacting with klipa. Okay. I'm going to leave that alone. That's a topic for another chapter. And this does mean that we can have a slightly different question, okay? Which maybe is... You could use the word healthy, but it's a slightly different question. I think it's important to differentiate this question, which is not how do I have a healthy then add the word whatever devotion to God type of thing. Um, Because I I have a vested interest in preserving myself as an entity. But how can this... um, how can this be done in a, in a settled manner? The idea is that Hashem wants there to be kind of a settled connection between the Chachma and the rest of reality. If you want to think about it like this, does God desire martyrdom or does, does, or does God desire a life of Torah and mitzvahs? Right, that's the general rule, right? So the question is, it's not enough to have Chachma, I need the Chachma to kind of settle in to life. And so if the Chachma ends up obliterating everything, then like, I kind of missed the point. But you see how that's a different question than I have a vested self-interest in maintaining my own self as an entity? So, so it ends up being that the same 
issue can be, can be a problem, but for two different reasons, right? Too much, you know, devotion to God, I might do things that are, that are, that are um, destabilizing and that wouldn't be good for maintaining myself as an entity. That's the Klippa's problem with those types of things. But it also wouldn't be fulfilling God's intent of bringing holiness into the world in a settled manner. And that would be a problem as a servant of God you'd have to address. Okay, so I'm just going to give you a concrete example. There was a buffer who um, wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael, land of Israel, learn in yeshiva, and he was suffering from schizophrenia. And the Rebbe said that he's not allowed to go learn in Israel unless he has um, unreserved approval from his psychiatrist that it's not going to be a problem. Is that because the Rebbe was concerned about preserving the entity of something ungodlike? even at the expense of service of God? Was that the issue? What was the issue? That the devotion to God should stay in existence in the world. And if this person you know, suffers you know, schizophrenic episodes, that could actually both end their life, God forbid, or end their ability to bring the Chachma into their life. So practically, the health of the person is being taken into account, but from a very different perspective. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not saying that I live that way. I mean, that's a, that's a very lofty thing, right? That someone who's devoted to the will of God, you know, thinks that way. Um, but it's important to realize that, that Chachma on its own, this thing, there is a certain um, extremism to the whole thing. Right? Remember, it's the thing that justifies martyrdom. Yeah? It's a little hard to see how Chachma is the bridge. Like, if it can lead to, like, I'm, not, I'm having a hard time seeing, I know it's not Hashem's infinite being is, itself, but... How is that the bridge physicality? Well, we haven't, we haven't really gotten there. Right? Um, it, it, actually, to, to be perfectly fair, you're not going to really fully understand that until you get to chapter 23. Um, and the answer has to be because, and the answer is going to be in a nutshell, is because Hashem is found in the mitzvahs. Hashem, Hashem places himself into, in, into, makes himself fully available in the physical mitzvah. The basic line of argument is going to be, um, and there, it's quite involved, is that a mitzvah is the purest um, um, expression or revelation of God's infinite being, and which that needs to be explained. What is God's infinite being and God's unity and all whole? And then, so you have like a bunch of chapters, but then eventually you get to start down chapter, and you get to chapter twenty three. What he then says is that that a, a mitzvah, therefore, is the embodiment of that thing. And so, therefore, the thing that the soul actually desires, which is to be um, subsumed within God, is really only available to the soul in a kind of way of f- true fulfillment, not by dying and going to heaven as we discussed before, but actually being completely as immersed as possible in the act of a mitzvah. So you're right. It doesn't. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't get the full equation. Right. It, 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 you know, in martyrdom, what it gets you to do is to is to is to is to um, relinquish the physical world. Right. So you need you need to make you, you, you right. You need to get that other side of the equation developed, and and, and you know that's later. But so now um, I, I do want to now take that idea and develop it a little bit more. There's another thing. 
There's a reason why klipa is called klipa. This is like not directly in the Tanya, but it's important. Kind of the, the other side of the equation of what I said. Klipa means a peel or a shell. Why does fruit have a peel or a shell? To protect the That's right. So what happens if you come to someone and say, you should serve God because it's all about God. You should be perfectly comfortable relinquishing your sense of self as an entity in any way, shape, or form, not just your physical life, but even your spiritual existence because the only thing that really matters is God. Is that person going to live life in such a way that is going to allow their soul to develop and manifest properly? No. No. But if that person can be persuaded that living a life as God wants us to live is, is, is in my best interest, and in doing so they become more refined and more sensitive to the soul, allowing the soul to develop become stronger, and this process repeats, could they get to a point where they can just shed the need to say, okay, this is my self-interest, it really is ultimately about God? They could get to that place. They could discover that place. And so there is an important thing to know that the ultimate truth is what we're learning here. But there is an idea that you know, a certain amount of caring about yourself is necessary protection and necessary scaffolding and necessary peel to protect the soul, to get you to be living a life that allows the soul to thrive such that the soul can really come out in a more proper manner. Right? Which is why you don't go to a teenager and tell them, you know, it's not about you at all in any way, shape, or form. And you shouldn't really care about what happens to you or preserving yourself as this, your sense of identity whatsoever, shape, or form. It's really about there's this God and you should be in touch with the part that, that just seeks to be unified with God absolutely completely. If you tell that to a teenager and you make their Judaism all about that, you should not be surprised that um, their Judaism is very lackluster if it remains at all. At least in, I'm talking their observance. Does that make sense? So there is an idea, and in the context of prayer, this is really what um, the beginning parts of the, after the morning blessings, and after we say the, the sacrifices and stuff, we start praising Hashem. We're really trying to get ourselves to realize, like, God is pretty, you know, God is pretty awesome. It would be pretty nice to be, have Him in our lives, and how wonderful it is in His life, and how Judaism makes our lives better, and, and yeah. And what does that do? That makes us live life in a way that's better for the soul, allowing the soul to be a stronger part of our life. Okay? This is the, so, so right now in our chapter, we're just talking about these two things as in and of themselves, right? But God, God seeks a more complex interaction between these two things, right? Between the holy and the unholy, between, be, be, between the side of, of, of Kedusha and, and the Chachma on the one hand and the Klippa on the other hand, okay? So... If a person walks away from this um, with the sense that chachma good, klipa bad, and that's the end of it, they're not completely wrong, but it's very immature. Okay? And that's actually part of the point. There is an immaturity about this approach that he's going to be developing. Immaturity doesn't mean wrong. I mean, you know, immaturity just means it's unsophisticated, unnuanced, right? Doesn't handle complexity well. But I do think it's important to realize that there are these other things. Okay? So I don't want to downplay what it is. I don't want to, oh, we should, we have to have the chachman healthy. No, 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 you know, like, no. Chachman is chachman, it's absolute and it's extreme. And, and at the same time, once you bring into God's intent for more complex and nuanced manifestation of chachman and interaction with klipa, 
which is developed in later chapters, then you, you know, in other place in Chassidus, then you have to realize that, yes, Chachma good, Klipa bad, but what do we do about it? You know, there's an immature approach to it, which maybe is what is called for on a basic level, and then more mature approaches. Okay. Now, therefore, they are called dead. For wisdom gives life. And it is also written, they die without wisdom. Okay, what does that mean? Wisdom, therefore they are called dead, for wisdom gives life, and also they die without wisdom. What does that mean? Well, first off, the word therefore means that what we just read should follow, what we're reading now should follow logically from what we just read, right? Okay, so what did we just read? We read that Chachma is the quality of being, of being willing to let go of yourself completely and totally identify with God. That it's only fulfillment would be in being totally subsumed within God, right? And Klipa is the opposite. It's the unwillingness to relinquish your own entity and thus closes you off from God, right? And any created entity which has some element of Chachma has some degree of holiness. And Klipa are things which are the antithesis, the opposite of that. Okay. Therefore what? Therefore, what's missing in Klippa? What's missing in Klippa? Chachma. And what, what gets two things by, by because of the Chachma? Going back to how we started with this intelligence, right? If you're smart, if you're wise, you're intelligence, you get that some sense of the truth. Chachma means that you have a sense of God, right? Okay. Is God the source of life? Yes or no? Yes. So something with Chachma, the Chachma enlivens it, right? And something that is devoid of Chachma, there's no God in that thing. If there's no God in that thing, then there's no... Life. Right, something devoid of life. And what do you call something that's devoid of life? Dead. So what is Klippa? Dead. It is dead. Klippa is dead. Does Klippa have... Energy and power and drive, yes, but it is dead. And the side of holiness is alive. Okay. Now, I want to stop here and, and describe what I mean by dead because very often people get confused. They just think dead, well, you have a corpse, it's dead. It's just, yeah. um, I'm going to, this is my favorite analogy. I'm, my analogy is going to be a a popular musician, right? A rock and roll star, a, 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 a pop singer, whatever it is, something like that. Like really, really, really famous. One that can pull, like what, what, how big do crowds get at concerts nowadays? Like a big concert. 10,000 people at a concert? More. More. 20,000 people? 30,000. 30,000. Someone who can easily pull 30, 40,000 people, crowds, right? Get them to go ecstatic, that kind of a, you know, that type of a, of a singer, musician, whatever, yeah? Imagine that type of person, right? Now, is it entirely plausible to you that that person could feel completely dead inside and completely like, have, just feel like, like the, the, the managers and this just need to like get them going because like they're just like, what's the point of this whole thing? And like, just they feel empty. Is that, is that plausible? I'm not saying everybody's like that, but is that entirely plausible to you that a person could be like that? So they have this, Ability to energize whole crowds, tens of thousands of people, right? And inside, they're dying. They're, dying. they're lifeless. They're, they're, right? 
They wouldn't wish that state of being on anybody. That's what klipa is like. I don't mean in, in, in terms of the sense that the klipa is devoid of any life and yet is extremely powerful, can energize. Now, here's the thing. If you don't have that maturity, right, or that life experience to realize that, right, it might seem to you a person who can exude that kind of energy and, 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 and have that kind of effect on people, they must be brimming with, with you know, their life must be thrilling and, and they must be thriving and they must be flourishing, right? Because that's often how it seems from the outside, but inside, it's cold and empty and dark and lifeless, right? So what's klipa? Klipa insists on being its own entity and as such, it blocks out God's presence and as a result of that, there's no life. Klipa is devoid of life. It's dead. Does that mean Klipa does not have a trem- exude a tremendous amount of energy and influence? No. And if you see the Klipa from the outside, what does it feel like? Death. From the outside. Mm-hmm. Energy. 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 And energy we often associate with life, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you want to really like live life, you might actually be attracted to Klipa because... Like, like people that think if only I could be like that famous person, my life would be so amazing. Right? And it really is that way. Okay? Good. Okay, so we understand. So the side of holiness is alive. And the side of Klipa is dead. dead. But not dead like... A corpse that's just inanimate, decaying, nothing's happening, but rather dead in the sense that we think of like a person who's internally dead, but is still exuding a tremendous amount of energy. By the way, a person like that, what do they often are motivated to do if they're motivated to do anything? Sin. No, forget, not, not in the analogy, you have a person who's like dead inside, right? There's this big musician, but, and they're... If they are motivated, right? What are they motivated? Are they motivated to realize that maybe they should like let go? Think maybe they should like stop this whole thing and try and like maybe live a quieter, simpler existence. Usually, not the case. What when they are motivated? Another project, another thing, right? More like be a bigger star, be get another award, right? But is that ever going to actually solve anything? No. no. So Klippa keeps insisting on becoming its own entity and keeps valuing things that makes its own entity and it's very driven and it's very energetic but it's not getting any more alive that way. It's actually deepening its own death. And Chachma, or thing, and, and to the degree that something is infused with Chachma, is the opposite. It strong, strongly identifies with Hashem. It's willing to not to let go of any aspect of its own entity in order to be reunited and subsumed within Hashem. And the degree to which Chachma is present in something is the degree to which that thing is willing to let go of itself a little bit and make space for Hashem. And in that, there's a real living. So that's a, that's a pretty harsh choice, Yes. It's meant to sound like a harsh choice. Okay. So we described this, the, you know, it's already in the abstract. Now we're going to move with the discussion talk about us. So are the wicked and transgressors of Israel. Who else is dead? 
sinners. Sinners and transgressors of Israel. No, no, no. Transgress, meaning Jewish people who sin and transgress. Now you think, well, I'm not a sinner and transgressor. I'm just going to read, I'm going to read very quickly until I get to, uh, to a certain point. Um, and um, just to point out that it's, that the author was talking about us right now. With the spark, uh, for the faculty, uh, before they face the test to sanctify God's name. For the faculty of Chacham, which is in the divine soul, with the spark of godliness from the light of the ancient blessed be he is clothed in it, as it were, is an exile in their body, within the animal soul, from the klipa, and the left part of the heart, which reigns and holds sway over their body in accordance with the esoteric doctrine of the exile of the Shkid, as mentioned earlier. For this reason, this love of the divine soul, whose desire and wish to unite with God at the fountainhead of life, blessed be he, is called hidden love, for it is hidden veiled in the case of transgressive Israel in the sackcloth of klipa, Whence enters them a spirit of folly to sin. As the rabbis have said, a person is not sin unless he has a spirit of folly. However, this exile, this exile of the fact of Chacham was only the aspect of it that is diffused throughout the nefesh and animates it, but the root and corpus faculty of Chacham reigns in the brain is not clothed in the sack of the klipa, but the left part of the heart in the veritable domain of exile. But it is as it were dormant in the case of the wicked, not exercising the influence of them so long as, so what kind of sinners is he talking about? I know, it's a long reading. I'm going to go back. What kind of sinners is he talking about? Their knowledge and understanding are preoccupied with mundane pleasures. Meaning, just ask yourself a basic question. Is the motivating force in your life mundane pleasures? Then, as far, then, then you are being governed by thee. And therefore your godly soul is in exile. We're going to go back to this. Right, okay. So, yeah. It was all a fun game to talk about the klipa, that abstract spiritual force. That's a whole other thing to talk about. That's right. The altar is saying we are all, we are all dead. We are like that pop star, and we don't know how dead we are inside. Which also is quite plausible, right? In fact, that pop star might be doing a lot of like substances and distracting behaviors, which are really bad for them, in order to drown out to the point they don't need, so that it's really easy to convince themselves that they're not dead inside. We might like really double down on immersing ourselves in the in the mundane aspects of light of existence, so that we're completely numb to the fact that we're dead inside. So yes, it turns out the Alter has basically said that the overwhelming majority of Jewish people are, spiritually speaking, dead. But there is a part of themselves inside which is alive, and so. What happens in Mesir, the moment of Mesiris Nefesh, the moment of when the Chachma wakes up and reasserts itself? What happens? The rescue comes alive. That's right. In other words, this is, this is the, the, I want to end on this point because this is like kind of the core idea and then, then we'll go back and work out the details. The moment of martyrdom we think of as a moment of death, right? What's the altar saying? What's the moment of martyrdom? It's the moment you come to life. You were dead before, up till that moment. That's the moment you become alive. And not because you were eating non-kosher food and driving on Shabbos, just the fact that your life is, a, is, is, is governed by klipa. You, the thing that is energizing you is death itself. And the moment that stops is the moment that we call martyrdom, Messias Nefesh. Now, if you really got that and you really understood that, what would you want then? 
Martyrdom. You ever heard of Rabbi Akiva? Why, why did he want martyrdom? He wanted to truly live. And it means like literally like dying for the sake of the child. Yeah, now the author actually wants to then take this and, 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 and add a level of, of, of sophistication and maturity and depth to it that allows it to become settled part of our life. Not necessarily in a way that we fully experience it, but in a way that, that it becomes something that we have integrity with. And so we become living in a more um, subdued but sustainable manner, right? That's ultimately, ultimately doesn't want us to experience that intense moment of, of coming to life in martyrdom. He wants us to, to appreciate it and then work with it. And that's going to take us into, you know, into 20, 24, 25. It's a whole process. Okay? But, but this is very, very important. In other words, if we think of... And we, the takeaway of this point is that, is that trying to be something and reuniting with God are opposites and trying to be something is death. And reuniting with God, the, even the urge to reunite with God, right? Even if you haven't achieved it yet, is being alive. Now, I really want to flesh out what does it mean to be alive, what does it mean to be alive. Like, I want to give more... more um, meat to, to, to this, 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 this skeleton, if you will. But right, the Al-Tarebbe is not advocating, this is extreme, but the Al-Tarebbe is not advocating, oh, oh, you should like, you should be like totally, you know, just, 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 just sacrifice yourself for God. He's actually making the opposite claim, is that when you try to preserve yourself, you're really killing yourself. And when you let go, and when you let go, the part of you that can totally let go and, and needs to be subsumed to God, that's when you really become alive. As he quotes, right? They die because they don't have Chachma. Okay. Now that really flips a lot of things on its head, right? Good. To the point that a person could be like Rabbi Kiva and want to have that, 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 that Chachma come out in that intense way. They want to be alive. Good. Okay, um, I'm not sure if tomorrow we're supposed to have questions and answers. I think we are. Yes, because I knew last week we do.